Hey there, you're listening to the Victor Plasma Podcast, Season 4, Episode Minus One. Yes, we've been off the air for about three months. I needed that time for personal stuff and creative breathing space and all that sort of thing. We've got lots of good stuff coming up. In fact, I've got a couple of episodes in the bag and I must apologise to Paul and Ree and Josh for not having broadcast them yet. They are coming. But for now, I want to talk about Annihilation. Not just the Jeff Vandermeer book, but Alex Garland's recent film version. And the reason I want to talk about it is because I actually ran Cthulhu Dark Annihilation at Concrete Cow. And just before Concrete Cow, Alex Garland's film was broadcast on Netflix, so I devoured it. And I have opinions. So I have some objections to Alex Garland's reworking of Annihilation for cinema. And on the days when I was feeling particularly grumpy, which happened to be the lead-in to uh, Concrete Cow, I called it considerably weaker than the novel, which is very pompous. But I do stand by that assessment. However, I am also a fan of Mark Kermode and generally find myself agreeing with him more often than not. And particularly on his lead into his review of Annihilation, where he cites Garland's earlier work, including the collaborations with Danny Poyle on films such as 28 Days Later and Sunshine. Uh, And he commented that the latter, Sunshine, has common threads with um, Annihilation, like the large dollop of event horizon, as he puts it, and the echoes of David Cronenberg, talking about things being led by change rather than monstrousness. He notes that Sunshine didn't find its audience, but like Sunshine and Stalker, Annihilation uses SF to play with big ideas. Well, maybe it's snubbery on my part. I do feel that a lot of the SF literature I like does that anyway. That's the point of SF. It explores not only spectacle and colour, but also concepts and extrapolates them. And if it didn't do that, then it would just be a soap opera in space. But let's take Kermode's comments at face value, particularly with reference to cinema. He is right the film does take risks, and it's a great effort, even when it gets a bit silly, thanks to the conviction of the filmmaker. And as a piece of uncompromising SF cinema, it does deserve to be applauded. We need more of this stuff in mainstream cinema. It's fantastic for that reason. Um, My objections are really that the film doesn't go far enough, but then I've been in that frame of mind since I reread the first book, which was in preparation for running Cthulhu Dark. And it happened that Annihilation's Netflix release was the Monday before the cow, so I devoured the film on release day, and then I wrote down everything different, every omission and plot compromise. And Kermo's view is a bit more objective than mine, I'll give him that, and it's less coloured by that experience. So, in deference to that, I went back to thinking about what is actually practical to put in a transition from book to film, and also from book to role-playing game, which is, you know, our raison d'etre. Firstly, I'm going to talk about the differences, which will necessarily be spoilerific, but I assume that since this is the third episode we've done featuring Annihilation, you've already consumed the book at least once. Um, Just to be safe, if you're an Alex Garland fan, go watch the movie if you haven't already, in case I spoil it for you, really. Okay, ready? Spoilers ahoy. Number one, the first two biggest differences are far and away the anonymity of the expedition, if you remember the expedition members refer to each other by vocation, and the use of hypnosis in the books. Neither of these are used in the film. There is some implied loss of memory after they enter the shimmer in the film, but there are no other hints. 
Both the occlusion of memory via hypnosis and of identity via anonymity are done in the book under the pretext of Area X somehow using this information against the expedition members. Second, a less important change is where the book prohibits new technology, but the film simply renders it non-functional. So they do take cell phones and radio equipment and other analysing equipment into Area X, but it doesn't work. A couple more minor changes. The biologist's partner in the film is the only one to return and is still alive during the events of the film. The team has only weeks of rations, not months of rations, in the book. There's no explicit base camp in the film. Instead, there is an old Southern Reach facility that has been taken over by Area X as the border expands. There's no tower or tunnel. Instead, the interest is focused on the lighthouse at the end of the trail, and that's something that's more obvious if you look at the map on Jeff Vandermeer's website. It is a trail that leads through the various important parts, features of the landscape, and the lighthouse is very obviously at its end. And structurally, the film is more linear than the book. Another point is the expedition holds itself together for much longer than the one in the book. And there's less emphasis on journals, which are used to record both the biologist and other expedition members' subjective experience of Area X. And there's more emphasis on messages from the previous expedition appearing to have been explicitly left as a warning to the future expeditions, rather than documenting their own expeditions. There's a bit of overlap there, but it's much more a foreshadowing tool about the danger to come. Now, some of these changes are more profound than others, both in the effect on the plot and my satisfaction in watching the film. Now, obviously, I've been prepping for a month through Cthulhu Dark Annihilation at Concrete Cal. That game is based on an imagined ninth expedition into Area X, and I chose an expedition before the twelfth in the books because that would then excuse me from any concerns about continuity. As a result, I've been going over the first book again, annotating here and there, making notes about the practicalities of the mission, such as restrictions on equipment and uh, the location of the base camp and the realities of the post-hypnotic suggestion and all of the things that the biologist experiences in Area X, particularly some of the rich description. So you can see I was primed and ready to find fault with the film adaptation. I was heavily invested in the book at this stage, and contradictions weren't really welcome. But after hearing the reviews from Kermit and others, particularly with reference to the other Alec Gardens SF that I love, I went back to look at the film a bit more objectively, and it made me think of a couple of things. Firstly, the challenge in transitioning between the media, be that book to film or, in my case, book to role playing game. And secondly, the setting of audience expectations and the ability to fulfil those expectations. First, let's talk about what you might want to change in going from book to RPG and why. Stating the obvious, an RPG isn't a book, so you cannot rely on an exact sequence of scenes or for characters to take the right action at the right time, at least not without some appalling railroading. You also can't rely on multiple narrative points of view. Sometimes this happens in role-playing games by good fortune of different party members taking separate actions which complement each other, and you can have a great fun smash-cutting between those scenes if you like. But just as often, you can expect the whole table to have a single narrative point of view, and if that's difficult, it's further compounded if you start to add flashbacks, or even worse, jumps into a future state. And I'm not saying you can't do that, but it takes careful choice of your system and scenario structure, something I'm going to come back to in a bit. 
Let's consider the book Annihilation as an example first of all. The novel's scenes in Area X are intercut with a biologist's former life. Whilst important to the character, these facets are normally experienced as backstory and then they're usually forgotten by role players. They'll be on the character sheet and then they will influence the game maybe a bit if there's a resource there or if there's a reason to tie their history to the now. You can force flashback scenes in Expedition, but there is another problem with doing that because that tends to distract from the session in play if the flashback lasts more than seconds. So whilst it's whilst it's reasonable to do flashback scenes, say, in Blades in the Dark because there is uh, it's a way of getting advantage and turning the tables, and that's interesting to the group. If, on the other hand, you flash back to some big piece of exposition away from the action or the now or the currently unsolved mystery, then I think you've got a bit of a problem with pacing. Now, in a story game sort of drama system type of game, where spotlight is rotated around the table, I think maybe that's less of a problem because you can move backwards and forwards in time and you can frame scenes as you choose, and that's okay. But for a more trad, environmentally bounded game of the kind that I frankly prefer to run, like a hex crawl or an investigation scenario, the players are going to be fixated on the task at hand. So then throwing the flashback is often not a, not a welcome distraction. James Wallace's fugue system for Las Vegas is an exception to this, and I do wonder if that system could be adapted to something like this game, particularly if you, let's say I was running an Annihilation game over several sessions rather than a one-shot. But the problem with the Las Vegas flashbacks is they're not intended to be a detailed exposition. What they're actually intended to do is throw a bit of detail in there that's as confusing as anything else. Uh, And it's an improvised element that's just thrown away for the characters to build on. While the film Annihilation doesn't do away with the past-present cutting in the novel, it does present the narration in a more linear fashion. The protagonist, the biologist played by Natalie Portman, is hooked into the expedition in real time as far as the observer goes. We see her walk into the shimmer, and along with her teammates, she experiences a sequential journey into Area X. Crucially, we don't require constant flashbacks to describe her motivations. It's all given to us at the start. This is even more important to the, for the transition to an RPG. While I've known a few games where the PC's motivations are unknown to themselves from the outset, it takes both luck and skill to pull that off. Why? Because in the absence of a reason to be there in the game written on the character sheet, players will fill that void during play. They'll just decide on their own alliances and motivations in play, often completely confounding the hidden motivations that you might have designed for them, if that's what you've done. The next comparison is a bit more subtle. Whereas the book restricts the available technology to the characters before they get to the get to Area X, in the film, the characters are more realistically equipped, but once inside the zone, some of their equipment is rendered almost useless. So they have the expectation of being able to communicate but find their resources limited once inside. But this becomes a different avenue for investigation. Since they're unable to use measuring devices the way they expected, they still make use of the equipment to gather information about their environment. So they can't communicate with the outside world, but they can still 
hear patterns in the static on the radio, they can still make assumptions based on what they're hearing, even if it's not the primary function of their device. Now, from an RPG perspective, this may be preferable because it encourages players to probe and then leap to conclusions rather than just shutting the players down. Most of the time when we deny technology to the PCs, it's not to foil information gathering efforts. It's to prevent them from appealing to higher authorities, calling for backup and so forth. This artifice is a staple of survival horror, which is certainly the genre that fits with Annihilation. One plot device I liked less in the film was the abduction of one of our of our point of view character and her returned partner by the Southern Reach, which then precipitated her involvement in the expedition. The problem with this for a game session is it gives the party a number of opportunities to question authority and say no to the mission. The book's presentation is in media res. The character's already behind the barrier, and I think this works a lot better for me, especially for a game and especially for a one-shot game where you want to limit the hanging around at the start. So I use that approach for my Cthulhu Dark game. The last difference I'll mention is the overall structure and party cohesion in the film. Certainly in the book, the Southern Reach encourages the expedition to stay together rather than fragment. Still, in the book, the 12th expedition just completely collapses very rapidly, and we know right from chapter one that there is a sense of most of the characters not being told everything and uh, an atmosphere of distrust. Now, in the film, they remain together as one unit and they are not quite so ready to dissolve into a PvP intrigue. And it's partly helped by the less adversarial nature of the psychologist character and partly because of the trail of breadcrumbs laid by the previous expedition. So they've got films to find bodies, bones and other items Unlike the biologist in the book, Natalie Portman's character is less distracted by inter-party politics and distrust for her teammates. And on that last point, the one thing that really will mess up a scenario that hasn't been built for it is internal suspicion from the outset. This will pollute everyone's motivations and probably stall the wrong scenario completely if, for example, the party are suspecting and second-guessing one another rather than focusing on the external trail of evidence. If I were running Annihilation as a short campaign, some inter-party suspicion would be more tolerable. You'd also have more time to build tension and introduce external elements. I ran this game using Cthulhu Dark, as I said, but I wonder how the Fugue system would be used for a longer campaign and, if so, what the transitions between the four acts would look like. In case you don't know what I mean, A Las Vegas is a game of rotating GMs where each player around the table GMs a particular act and crucially doesn't read any part of the adventure apart from that act that they're GMing. I can imagine a sort of scenario like Lost, where the emphasis of each act runs from personal survival to encountering other expeditions to a return to the Southern Reach and then back to area acts per the trilogy. But maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's talk about the game around a concrete cow and what went well and also what I'd change. I prepared for the game by rereading Annihilation and making numerous annotations. The great thing about the Kindle is I can highlight passages, add comments and email the lot to myself for review. Yeah, so I dig my Kindle. Anyway, I picked out essential parameters for the mission. For example, how much equipment, food and tech they brought. 
the general appearance and description of the nature of Area X, the loss of memory, the anonymity, the themes of hypnosis, the fact that the characters were more than just a vocational description. So in this case, we had a linguist, a physicist, a biologist, and a geologist, but also the fact that revealing personal information to Area X was somehow harmful. On that last point, there's a lot of ambiguity and veiled threat in the novel. Harmful how, exactly? What are the consequences of revealing personal information? I'm sure you've already thought of such consequences yourself. In my case, I, I basically laid in-game mechanistic traps, which would be triggered by such personal revelations. And Ariokes would then react to the characters. As it happened, the backstory I wrote for each, on each of the character sheets was a bit too subtle to tempt the players to reveal it to the others. The idea was that embedded in the backstory, which were just three pithy sentences of three different things about their life that implied certain skill sets, um, the idea was that they would read those and then say, well, I have this skill to bring to bear, a skill that wasn't publicly declared. So by publicly declaring that, they would then expose themselves to Area X and also obviously to their teammates. They didn't do that, and I think maybe the writing was a bit too subtle. I did get the sense of a certain amount of hoarding as well, though. By that, I mean I am personally terrible at forgetting in-game to use things like strings and, and fate points and other one-use items, um, even when prompted by the GM to do so. And I don't know if this is a problem that everyone has, but you know I can relate to that. So there is a bit, as I said, there's a bit of a minor tweak I need to make there. Now, I was using Cthulhu Dark. The point about having hidden talents implied is that when you play Cthulhu Dark, you get to roll one dice if your action is within human capability and one dice if it's within personal expertise. So you'll get that extra dice if you're prepared to reveal something about yourself to the rest of the characters. I thought it was it could work, but I think I need to be, as I say, a bit more forthright in what those secret skills are. I really wanted to be faithful to the Cthulhu Dark format. So, on page 21 of Cthulhu Dark Zero, Graham Wormsley notes that every setting has a power which is going to be close or connected in some way to the final horror. In this case, the power is unquestionably the Southern Reach, which is, if you think about it, a faceless entity sending relatively powerless characters into Area X to get more and more information, not really understanding why, why it doesn't, and being, prevent, being prepared to sacrifice them to further its own ends. I needed to stay conscious of both my themes and my threat. In the former, the themes I chose were, were the transformation of both the coastline and the characters against their will. Now, as for threats, I was really tempted to just lift the colour out of space wholesale from the book. Just an aside, a few years ago at Dragon Me, I bought Stealing Cthulhu from Graham, and he asked me what my favourite Cthulhu monster was, and I said, colour. So, then he personalised our copy of Stealing Cthulhu right there on page 81, talking, noting, reminding us that colours have do flawed science well. And the story fits exceptionally well with colour, the struggle of the Southern Reach to understand Area X, pouring resources into the place, probably agitating the area and exacerbating its growth. And it also works with the themes of life and death. Now, I actually don't think that's really much of a reveal at all, um, because, of course, the real interest is not the monster so much as the human in the spaces around the monster. The fact that Area X is strange and alien is right there from the mission briefing. 
Some of the other things I really like in Cthulhu Dark's mystery writing advice include 10 different filters that you can apply to your written scenario through the eyes of the keeper, the technician, the monster, and so on. None of these are revelatory for experienced GMs, but they're really a fantastic tool that really cuts to the essence of what a good scenario is. I do really recommend Cthulhu Dark. It's a terrific game, but maybe the thing that that's best about it is that it speaks to the experience called Cthulhu GM about cutting back and refining the experience. The only bit I found a really slight challenge was the system itself, I have to say. And I just found my players rolling an inordinate number of sixes, and that's fine. But the question is, every time they roll a six, am I supposed to force an inside roll? Am I supposed to escalate the weirdness? Yeah, maybe, maybe I should be doing that. Should I be forcing the players to commit their inside die? to get the information they want. It would make sense, given that every action inside Area X should be a risk to one's sanity, insight, uh, human integrity, whatever you call it. It's just a matter of practice rather than anything else. So I'm going to run it again and get a bit more practice in the system. But it was maybe so stripped down that it was I felt slightly lost at times trying to run it. Now, as for running the scenario, I massively overestimated the need to prep. The party spent the first hour in real time, not moving through the spot that they'd come in on, but instead just digging holes and studying tree roots and the flight patterns of birds and all sorts of other things. But on the other hand, the prep that was absolutely vital were the sheets on the table, the character sheets and the map which in hindsight I wish I'd spent a lot more time on rather than just rushing it in the night before. As for plot, I had more than enough because the players were doing what the best investigative players do. They seized on evidence, they drew conclusions and they talked aloud to one another about it. They filled the time with their theories and showed genuine curiosity. I'm not saying it was the best example of an investigative scenario, but it was definitely something I would aim for again uh, to try and recreate that experience because uh, that was quite a lot of fun to just watch happen. Now, other things I was quite pleased about, um, I had this mechanic where they wrote in their journals so they'd each take an index card of uh, and, and they I would I initially expected to have to prompt them by hypnosis to write their daily experience, their subjective experience and ask them a particular question. As it happened, I couldn't deal out the index cards fast enough and just spontaneously all of the characters grabbed a fistful of index cards and started writing down their personal observations. The plan I had was actually to use those things that they'd written down. Um, I actually ran out of time and had to cut the scenario short. I think it's definitely something that I would try to use in the future. Uh, it was inspired partly by our brainstorming back in Season 2, Episode 4, I think, of Annihilation, where we thought about different ways of exploring the setting. The other thing I liked was the font I used for the character sheets. Okay, it's quite superficial. It's called BP Typewriter Broken, so it simulates a typewriter with well-used and damaged type keys. Things I would have done differently, though, I would have harassed the characters more from the outset. So the scenario was fine as it is, but a bit more threat would have pushed the characters to move a bit more. And in that respect, I think that may be a problem with Cthulhu Dark in that it lacks a mechanic for counting down, i.e. hit points, fatigue, health clock, um, or something else that gives an impending 
sense of peril. Obviously, you can narrate the character's downfall and the ills that they suffer, um, and you can certainly bring the threat closer by attacking the humans around them. But in this game, where the characters are mostly isolated from any NPCs, the only thing the characters have to lose is their physical and mental well-being. And crucially, insight is something that you gain, not lose, which may be splitting hairs for some listeners, but I think it's an important aesthetic distinction if their insight should be gained. And certainly, there's no doubt that that's the biologist is gaining and transforming herself, but I don't think it provides an adequate sense of threat. I might use another role-playing system in the future, something like Unisystem, for example. Okay, the last thing I want to talk about is setting expectations. Now, if I pitch a game as Cthulhu Dark Annihilation and say that it's an armed expedition into the weird landscape at the behest of a shadowy government organisation, I can expect all kinds of assumptions depending on the player. For someone who is completely ignorant of the source material, all the system but is a cool Cthulhu fan, they might, there might be expectations that this is the serious end of cosmic horror, but otherwise it's you know mechanically BRP and it will have a set number of monsters, etc. They could, of course, assume that it's actually more pulpy because everyone's got a machine gun. For the Cthulhu Dark fan, it's obviously it's an, an inescapable descent into a grim ending and nobody wins. And for a Vandermeer reader... It's more akin to survival horror with a bit of dark conspiracy thrown in. Of course, the different elements will all complement one another and changes will shade expectations. What would happen if I shifted from Cthulhu Dark to, say, a Unisystem game like Conspiracy X or an OSR game like Silent Legions, which would probably fit quite well. In some cases, you want to confound expectations and a bait and switch is a fair tactic. And in that case... You're not failing to meet expectations, you're deliberately reprioritizing them. But even with the bait and switch, what you have to do is sell the initial premise. So if you've got a premise that isn't distinct enough, then you're not going to get the right expectations to get that emotional lurch. A picture is worth a thousand words, of course. And if you've seen the stills for the Annihilation movie, you would already have expectations that the expedition is going to be about four heavily armed women under threat going through a, a jungle on a boat. You know, they're going to have something to shoot at, even if shooting at, it's, uh, shooting at something is ultimately futile. And that's probably my largest concern, that any potential players would have seen the movie first and formed certain conclusions. But mm, is that really a concern? If you listen to the most recent Grognard Files podcast on paranoia, that perfectly illustrates mismatched expectations because you can play paranoia as a slapstick or darkly humorous or dystopian and serious. And if you pitch a game to unknown players, goodness knows what they're expecting. But you can be sure that those expectations will influence what happens at the table, even if it's not to the GM's design. Expectations are a problem when adapting. So I think I'll close on saying expectations are a kind of problem when adapting any kind of fiction. And it's one of the reasons why I like to focus on the elements of the fiction and how we can make use of those, rather than just saying this is based on a particular piece of fiction. This is the definitive Book of the New Sun role-playing game. Well, definitive to whom? Book of the New Sun has many different ways of reading it and many different expectations depending on where the game is going to be set. And the same is probably true of Annihilation or anything else that you choose to take from the page to the gaming table. Right, I've rambled for long enough. 
Normal service will resume shortly. Until then, if you want to get in touch and talk about transitioning from book to RPG or film to RPG and about how you manage your players' expectations, how you like to have your expectations managed, or maybe you don't, maybe you like to be surprised, then why not get in touch? Put on social media, on G+, on Facebook, and you can leave a comment on the website as well. But until then, take care, and I'll see you later. Bye.